Today on the cycle edition, we will be discussing the catalytic asymmetric addition of an amine and H bond across internal alkenes by the group of John Hartwig, which was recently published in Nature. In this paper, they identify a cationic iridium catalyst to facilitate the enantioselective hydroamination of unactivated internal alkenes, affording a chiral alkylamine. Chiral alkylamines are functional groups that are present in almost any industry. So medicinal chemistry, agrochemistry, um, and materials chemistry, for example. So being able to access these functional groups in a highly enantioselective way from feedstock chemicals is a very important advance. So in this paper that we're discussing today, they access these chiral amines through a hydroamination reaction. So the addition of an NH bond across an olefin. And this is a direct way to install these chiral amines. So if you look at the current literature that is out there, there are many, many different methods to do hydroamination reactions, incorporating different starting materials, reagents, um, byproducts. But for the purpose of this paper today, we are going to be focusing on methods that do this directly without the use of stoichiometric byproducts. So I wanted to bring up one reason why I really thought this paper was unique. And we are going to talk about some of the background that, you know, kind of covers a lot of hydroamination chemistry. But the fact that they're targeting primary amines is something you don't see in a lot of the hydroamination literature. It's something that's pretty difficult to do because using ammonia as an amination source is not the easiest. And so in this case, they do use a surrogate for ammonia, but primary amines are pretty much intermediates on the way to secondary and tertiary amines, which are prevalent in most pharmaceutical and agrochemical resources that have you know, amines in them. And so when I was reading through some of the literature, one of the things that people always argued for wanting to make these chiral primary amines was that if you can access these chiral Primary means you then basically have access to any number of functionalized secondary and tertiary amines from a single reaction. And so the ability to do a highly enantioselective synthesis, such as the one in this paper, is going to be really beneficial going forward. To start on this, I think we can maybe hit some of the challenges that hydroamination chemistry has encountered over you know, the course of its field. And so this paper introduces them pretty well, but some of the primary challenges are that for these internal alkenes in particular, so a 1,2-disubstituted alkene, there's a real low driving force, um, thermodynamic driving force for the addition or for the hydroamination step. Along with that, there's a high kinetic barrier due to a negative entropy. So it's entropically disfavored to do this addition reaction. And so there have been a few different techniques to try and overcome this, namely through attempts at pre-organizing the catalyst with either the alkene or the amine, as well as some photochemical reactions that we'll go through. Another general challenge of hydroamination is selectivity. And by selectivity, I mean both regioselectivity and enantioselectivity. Um, so like we were mentioning before, a lot of the previously reported hydroamination reactions have focused on substrates like styrenes or terminal alkenes where the selectivity is more predictable. But the Hartwig group wants to look at internal alkenes where regioselectivity is, is much harder. One of the unique recent ways to address at least the regioselectivity aspect of hydroamination reactions has come out of the field of photochemistry. 
Two professors who have really targeted this in their groups are the groups of uh, Dave Neshevitz and Rob Knowles. And they've kind of approached this task um, in two different ways. So Neshevitz was kind of the first to look into this. And the way that they addressed hydroamination and the regioselectivity, the regioselective nature of it was to use a extremely oxidizing photocatalyst. So what they would do is after photocatalytic excitation, the photocatalyst would oxidize the alkene to the radical cation. Nucleophilic addition to that radical cation by an amine happens in an anti-Markovnikov sense, forming a stabilized tertiary radical. And so the, the stability of that tertiary radical really dictated the anti-Markovnikov selectivity. Similarly, in Bulls' case, they instead oxidized the amine through a photochemical proton-coupled electron transfer step. And then that radical addition to an alkene, again, forms a secondary or tertiary radical, which is stabilized over the primary radical and, again, favors a anti-Markovnikov reaction. And so through these two different ways to activate either the amine or the alkene, they're able to favor the regioselective anti-Markovnikov uh, hydroamination. And I think these examples also illustrate a few different things. So like Wes was saying, they were able to get a highly regioselective addition for uh, the anti-Markovnikov hydroamination product. And they went about it through two different mechanisms. So one was oxidizing the alkene and one was oxidizing the amine. So that just showcases how you can approach the same problem and use photochemistry for the same problem, but go about it in two different ways, which is present in some of the other methods we'll talk about for uh, thermal methods to do hydroamination reactions. Another couple of advantages to photochemical methods is first that they're often done at lower temperatures compared to the thermal methods. In photochemical methods, obviously you're using light to generate highly reactive intermediate, so oftentimes you can get away with lower temperatures. And another general advantage to photochem is that photochemistry allows you to do thermodynamically uphill reactions. Wes was talking initially about how hydroaminations are oftentimes nearly thermoneutral. And if you're doing a thermal reaction and you're trying to do an uphill reaction, there's really no way to do it unless you're coupling the reaction to another highly exothermic reaction. But in photochemistry, you can inherently do thermodynamically uphill reactions because the photons can pay that energetic cost. So another advance from these methods that I would just like to highlight before we uh, move on is that photochemistry and the use of a photocatalyst has allowed these um, hydroamination reactions to take place on a highly substituted alkene. And so by using a photocatalyst in light, you're able to activate the substrate either the amine or the alkene in a different way than transition metals would, which allow you to functionalize these highly substituted alkenes, which just provides a complementary approach to some of the transition metal uh, methods that we're going to talk about next. So as Grace mentioned um, with the photochemistry approach where you can activate both either the amine or the alkene, when we get down to uh, transition metal catalyzed hydroamination reactions. There have been, again, kind of two methods for running these reactions, either looking at facilitating the alkene transition metal interaction or facilitating the amine transition metal reaction. In the case of the paper we're discussing today, they look at really targeting that transition metal amine interaction. And so to start, we'll go through the other one. So I think a nice example 
of this um, focus on the transition metal alkene interaction comes out of the group of Curie Engel, where he's looked at a palladium catalyzed hydroamination reaction. They use a heteroaromatic directing group coordinated to an alkene. And so they use this to pre-organize the alkene with their palladium catalyst, which allows that alkene to basically be you know, activated by that transition metal. Then when they look at doing the amination reaction using some nucleophilic nitrogen source, the amino palladation step is what they call it. Basically, the, the attack of the amine on that alkene occurs through an outer sphere mechanism, basically a nucleophilic um, attack on the alkene, forming a five-membered palladocycle that has the opposite carbon from where the amine attacked bound to the palladium center. Ingle mentions here that this system really overcomes two of the big challenges that are seen in transition metal hydroamination. The first is regioselectivity, which we talked about at the beginning. And this directing group, like Wes was saying, can enforce a highly selective attack of the amine onto one of the carbons of the alkene. And then the other challenge that we'll get into more later is after you form this metal alkyl intermediate, uh, especially with palladium, there's often a high propensity for beta hydride elimination, which can lead to oxidative amination products. Uh, and this, this highly organized palladocycle really inhibits that beta hydride elimination and favors the hydroamination product. So this method showcases one way to go about the activation of the alkene, and they were able to uh, showcase both terminal and internal alkenes in this method with a variety of different nitrogen nucleophiles, but it requires this directing group to be synthesized on the alkene of choice. Ideally, and one, one thing we'll keep coming back to in relation to Hartwig's paper that we're discussing today, is being able to use feedstock alkenes to do the method. And so if you are thinking about a way uh, to use feedstock alkenes, you need to move away from the directing group strategy, like is shown in Engel's paper. Additionally, this method installs these amines and does the hydroamination reaction racemically. And so being able to do this enantioselectively without the use of the directing group would be a really nice advance and is one thing the Hartwig group is trying to address in their paper. So another similar paper that goes about addressing some of these challenges that are present in Kiri Ingle's paper is by the group of Cami Hull in collaboration with scientists at Merck. And they discovered a hydroamination reaction to form 1,2-diamines through the use of allylamines. And this mechanism proceeds very similarly to that of Curie Engel's work as it coordinates this allylamine to the rhodium catalyst, which then puts the alkene in close proximity to the metal, which then can, upon coordination, can undergo a nucleophilic outer sphere attack, similar to what we saw in the Engel paper. This method was enantioselective, so they used a chiral bidentate phosphine ligand, and they were able to see really good selectivity for the Markovnikov addition product, um, as well as really good EEs for this amination reaction by using this chiral ligand. One thing that this paper gets at that we'll discuss more in depth when we start talking about um, the oxidative addition of amines followed by um, alkene coordination as in the Hartwig paper is the electrophilicity of the ligands and the transition metal. And so in this case, they identified 
a bidentate phosphine ligand that has electron withdrawing groups around the phosphines. And what they pitch is that that makes the transition metal more electrophilic, thus activating the alkene towards nucleophilic attack by the amine in solution. What I think is really interesting here in across kind of all of the reading that I did in preparation for this podcast is that that, that trend, the need of an electrophilic metal center to kind of help um, assist the alkene in undergoing this amination reaction seems to be a general method to overcome some of the difficulties in hydroamination reactions. The Hartway paper that we're talking about today incorporates this NH oxidative addition that is mechanistically distinct from the outer sphere nucleophilic attack reactions that we've talked about to this point. And this new mechanism was introduced back in 1988 with a paper from David Milstein and Castelnovo. And this was the first successful demonstration of a catalytic amination of an olefin by an NH activation. So in this mechanism, there's initially an oxidative addition of an NH bond to a metal center to give an amido ligand. Then after olefin coordination, there's a migratory insertion into the amido ligand and following CH reductive elimination, you get to the aminated product. So this was a really interesting paper from Milstein, uh, but they were limited to using aniline as the amine source and norbornene, which is a highly reactive alkene. But what we'll see is that, well, this paper is pretty different from Hartwig. They were using somewhat of a similar precatalyst. Uh, they used a bisphosphine ligated iridium, which is, yeah, again, somewhat similar to the Hartwig paper that we're talking about today. One of the things I really appreciated about that paper is it's it, it's very you know organometallic. It's a very classic organometallic paper where they actually isolate the iridium amido complex as well as the migratory inserted product um, and have crystal structures of them. And for a while in hydroamination literature, even after um, this paper, there was a lot of discussion over whether or not the amine attack came from inter or intra molecular sources. So either is it an outer sphere attack um, you know, by a nucleophilic amine, or did it actually coordinate with the metal and undergo a syn addition? So this was one of the, the first papers to really characterize those intermediates and show that they were catalytically viable in these reactions. That is why this paper is one of the most referenced when you look at hydroamination literature. And basically, it, it was the basis for um, Hartwig's initial investigations into iridium compounds as hydroamination catalysts. Yeah, Hartwig started investigating this, um, I think, he's been interested in hydroamination reactions for a while, but really uh, identifying systems that can use unactivated olefins like norborine in the Milstein case. He published a paper in 2008 that used these norborine strain green systems um, iridium catalysts and uh, these bisphosphine ligands and was able to do the hydroamination reaction with pretty good EE, but they were limited to these very strained ring systems. And so he later published in 2012, which um, in Jack's a really interesting paper that I think we'd like to take more time on today to really showcase the difference in methods between this paper and uh, the current Nature paper that was just published. Uh, but they use this iridium system to do a hydroamination uh, with amides or sulfonamides as the amine source. In this reaction, they employed terminal unactivated alkenes for the hydroamination. And so 
taking a closer look at uh, the mechanism of this transformation, it starts by an NH oxidative addition, uh, similar to the Milstein paper that Matt was just discussing, to yield this six coordinate iridium catalyst, which they believe is the resting state of their catalyst. And then upon ligand dissociation and reorganization of this catalytic intermediate, uh, the alkene can coordinate and undergo a migratory insertion into the iridium nitrogen bond. And this step here is the turnover limiting step in this case. From there, one of two pathways can take place. So either the CH reductive elimination, which forms the N-alkylamide product, or a beta hydride elimination, which forms an enamide product, uh, which would be your oxidative amination product. And so seeing that they get a mixture of these products, they can introduce hydrogenation conditions to reduce any of the enamide product to the formal hydroamination product. So looking at this catalytic cycle and this transformation, um, they were limited to terminal olefins, which coordinate the iridium. And so as you move to uh, more substituted olefins, they're more unactivated. And so in this transformation, if that step is already the rate limiting step or the turnover limiting step in the reaction, the migratory insertion of this alkene to the iridium nitrogen bond, moving to a 1,2 disubstituted olefin will slow that down further. In order to start addressing these sorts of problems and be able to incorporate these sorts of substrates, Hartwig looked at this iridium catalyst system and uh, questioned how could they make this more electrophilic so this alkene would have a higher propensity to bind to it. Looking at this mechanism, there are several challenges that a developer is going to need to overcome. So first, the alkene needs to bind after the NH oxidative addition, and this implies that the amine can't bind too strongly uh, to inhibit the alkene from binding. So that's challenge number one. Challenge number two is that migratory insertion into the amido bond must outcompete migratory insertion into the hydride ligand uh, because that would lead to alkene isomerization and can give a wide variety of products that you don't want. And finally, after that migratory insertion, CH reductive elimination of the metal alkyl complex has to outcompete beta hydride elimination to avoid oxidative amination products. And all of these challenges were addressed in this paper by using a terminal olefin. Uh, that was able to bind and um, do the migratory insertion into this bond, uh, but also this transformation was racemic. And so being able to overcome this last challenge that Matt had mentioned of this competing beta hydride elimination versus CH reductive elimination uh, was overcome by doing a hydrogenation at the end of the reaction. So you only form this N-alkyl product um, but if you're going to do a, an anti-selective transformation, any beta hydride elimination would erode the EE that you would get out of this transformation. So the Hartwig 2020 paper that we are covering now, I think is just a powerhouse in terms of rationally designing a new iridium catalyst to target 
alkenes that are more difficult to activate, these one, two internal alkenes. Due to sterics and electronics, they're more difficult to target than a terminal alkene. And so activating them in this mechanism through migratory insertion is even harder than it is for these terminal alkenes. And so they targeted that step first um, when they were thinking about designing these new catalysts. And I think some of the ideas that came into this idea of needing to have a cationic iridium center instead of a neutral iridium center, which is typically neutral by a chloride ligand, comes out of a 2011 JAKS paper that Hartwig published. In this paper, they looked at the um, hydroamination of ethylene by a palladium catalyst, but the conclusions that came out of it were that the hydroamination, this migratory insertion was sped up when you use electron deficient palladium centers. They did that by a Hammett um, analysis of the um, one of the palladium ligands. And so, um, and then also it was faster when you had bulkier ligands. And so both of those come into play here. The first is that they designed this cationic iridium center. In that Hammett analysis, they basically proposed that the alkene builds negative charge during the migratory insertion step. So having a cationic iridium center would stabilize that negative charge. And so that was the first change in this catalytic cycle that Hartwig targeted in this 2020 Nature paper. With any change in the catalytic cycle, that's going to affect other steps in the cycle. So if you make a more electrophilic iridium center, that will accelerate the alkene coordination, migratory insertion, and reductive elimination, but that will slow down the oxidative addition of the initial NH bond. And so to combat this kind of secondary problem that arose from making a more electrophilic iridium center, uh, they identified this ammonia surrogate, which is a two-amino puridine where uh, that extra pyridine nitrogen will coordinate to the iridium center and situate the NH bond in closer proximity to the iridium to help facilitate that NH oxidative addition. And I want to point out that this 2-aminopyridine reagent was used as well by Shibata back in 2012 in an Orglet paper. But in that paper, they were still only able to tolerate styrenes uh, and do it in moderate EEs. Um, and one of the really interesting parts that's unique to this paper in relation to the 2-aminopyridine surrogate is that they add another substituent on the pyridine ring. Um, so they find that optimally, if they just use a methyl group, the reaction works, whereas if it's just 2-aminopyridine, the reaction doesn't work. And their idea here is that that methyl group weakens the binding of a second pyridine ligand on the iridium so that that can dissociate and allow alkene association. And again, this was probably needed because they switched to a cationic iridium center where the ligands will bind stronger. So thinking about the three challenges that Matt had talked about in the previous Jack's paper and how you would need to overcome them when using a more substituted olefin, changing to a cationic iridium center is one way to speed up or to accelerate the alkene migratory insertion and reductive elimination. Using this ammonia surrogate allows for the coordination of the secondary nitrogen to facilitate a more facile oxidative addition of the NH bond. Um, but the last challenge that we haven't really discussed yet in terms of this new system is overcoming the beta hydride elimination. 
by using this ammonia surrogate as well, this will form a rigid six-membered aridocycle. And because of this uh, cycle, it will prevent the beta hydride elimination and facilitate solely the CH reductive elimination. Upon forming their product, then they also recognize that this ammonia surrogate is an easily cleavable group. So they believe they'll be able to cleave it with high enantiospecificity. After discussing the mechanistic um, insights that led them to design this new idea for cationic iridium, Catalyst, they go into optimizing said catalyst. They start with an iridium cyclooctene um, chloride dimer and the addition of, um, they start with DTBM segfos, just a bisphosphine ligand and sodium barf. The goal is there that um, the sodium chloride all precipitate out, leaving the barf counter anion and a chiral cationic iridium species. I like the way that they kind of focus in on what's important to them in this paper, which is this idea of you know, eliminating the alkene isomerization and targeting really that, that one um, hydroamination step. And so they start by just looking at the overall yield of hydroamination products, which could either be the primary hydroamination that they want or any sort of um, hydroamination of isomerized alkenes, chain-walked alkenes, and investigating that pyridyl group. And as Matt said, they identify that having that 6-methyl group added onto the 2-aminopyridine facilitates the hydroamination at the 1-2 um, internal alkene um, in about a 30% yield over chain-walked um, other alkenes, but it is by far the best out of a series of 2-aminopyridines that they investigated. And so from there, they then target the phosphine ligands, these chirophosphine ligands, as a means to facilitate the preference for the migratory insertion step over insertion into the iridium hydride and then chain walking isomerization. And so they target a, a series of triaryl bisphosphine ligands and what they state um, aligns with their previous work in that 2011 um, palladium case where the steric encumbrance around that ligand along with making the ligands more electron withdrawing, i.e. making the iridium center even more electrophilic, facilitate the hydroamination over the insertion into the iridium hydride. And so they're able to get selectivity for the foramine in the hydroamination of cyclooctene in excellent yield using a new ligand that they designed, but is fairly similar to some of these other bisphosphine ligands. And they're able to get this reaction in high EE. One of the things that is Interesting, I think, that comes out of this is the counter anion effect. So you're now having a cationic iridium species with some sort of exogenous unbound anion to neutralize that charge. And they find that the identity of that counter anion really affects both the EE and the yield, with triflamid giving them the highest selectivity for the four position, the highest yield overall, and the highest EE. The authors don't provide a reason why this anion effect exists. Um, and so I think that's just a really interesting part of this mechanism that will hopefully lead to further study into how the anions may control some of the selectivity in these reactions. So that's an interesting point that you bring up because looking through other iridium-catalyzed thermal reactions, in many papers across Hartwig's platform, across other authors, there's always an interesting effect with this anion and many people see a trend with it. They see a clear a uh, display of like difference in reactivity. But from what I've found, and it seems Hartwig the same, there, there's not really an explanation for why. 
there's something interesting going on here. And I don't know if anyone has done a deep dive into figuring what that out what that is. So another part to their optimization that they did was a control experiment using a neutral iridium catalyst. And uh, they say in the text that they saw exclusive formation of the oxidative amination product, which I thought was really interesting because that means this neutral iridium catalyst still facilitated the NH oxidative addition uh, coordination of the alkene and migratory insertion. But then upon forming the six-membered iridis cycle, the reaction underwent beta hydride elimination to form that oxidative emanation. To me, I interpreted this as it had to be like the sterics of the catalyst. So having a coordinated chloride anion on the catalyst would make the six-membered iridis cycle um, less stable and less rigid. So it like it must interrupt this binding of the pyridine forming this six-membered iridocycle leading to increased amounts of the oxidative amination over the stabilized complex. After optimizing the cationic iridium complex, they go into looking at the scope. And one point to note with this entire reaction is that the alkene that they need to use for these reactions has to be the Z or cis alkene. They note in the SI um, and in the text that if they use the E alkene, they see lowered selectivity. And so the scope is good. They show a number of, um, you know, one, two internal alkenes, symmetric and asymmetric. The asymmetric ones I think are kind of nifty because the regioselectivities in those aren't bad. Um, they're better than two to one, some of them getting closer to 10 to one. Um, they, you know, state, and I think it's kind of intuitive where the amine is positioned on these products. It seems to be kind of further away from the more sterically bulky or more, you know, electronically interesting substrate. And so they claim inductive effects are, you know, kind of directing some of that regioselectivity. They show the addition onto a, a, a big steroid looking molecule as well with good DR and, you know, nifty regioselectivity. They do some cycloalkenes and those work well. And they also show them when they can be asymmetric and they get pretty good EEs. I think one of them, they did a diastereoselective reaction on cyclopentane and they were able to get the trans isomer in good yield and high EE. And then finally, they show that they can cleave the um, aminopyridine to give them the primary amine. Um, I think that's probably one of the most important parts of this reaction is that they actually do end up giving primary amines at the outset in fairly good yields and in greater than you know, 90% in antiospecificity, which is really good. One thing that caught me here was that there's one substrate that I'm missing for myself in this substrate scope, and that is 2-butene. Um, and it could just be that the EZ selectivity of this catalyst didn't permit them studying, you know, 2-butene under this reaction. But 2-butene seems to be one of those hydrofunctionalization substrates that everyone targets as kind of a benchmark. If you can get an anti, like high in antiselectivity with 2-butene, you have a really good um, cycle. And so that was just one substrate that I would have liked to see, but this um, selectivity issue between the E and the Z could be one of the reasons why it's not shown. They finished the paper by doing some nice, concise, mechanistic experiments that support the mechanism that they're proposing. So they started by deuterium labeling the amine on the 2-aminopyridine, and the product that they saw showed a syn addition of the hydrogen and nitrogen across the double bond, which is, again, consistent with this migratory insertion 
of the nitrogen into the alkene rather than an outer sphere nucleophilic attack onto a metal bound alkene. They then did some kinetic studies and what they found was that the reaction is first order in the iridium catalyst and positive order in the alkene, but it's inverse first order in the amine. And this is the exact same thing that they saw in the 2012 JAKS paper. And uh, it's kind of interesting because it shows that the resting state of the catalyst is likely the catalyst with two of these two aminopyridine substrates bound to it. And that on the way to the turnover limiting step, one of those pyridines needs to dissociate. Finally, they did a really interesting competition experiment. They basically did their reaction under the standard conditions, but they also added one equivalent of two aminopyridine without the methyl substituent and they saw no reaction. And this is consistent with what they were proposing, basically that the, the methyl group is there in order to increase the lability of these ligands. Um, basically, if you don't have that methyl group, the 2-aminopyridine will bind too strongly so that it won't be able to dissociate and the alkene will not be able to associate and insert into the amido ligand. So looking at this paper as a whole, um, and bringing this conversation a bit more out, I thought this paper was a really refreshing read and I really enjoyed reading it, but also learning about how they went about optimizing this catalyst. And I think it was very clear in the text and their figures about uh, the problems and the challenges they needed to overcome in order to develop a method that is able to incorporate these internal alkenes that are also unactivated. And so I think this is present in many of Hartwig's papers. And I really enjoy reading just the papers that come out of his program uh, because they're all um, here to teach you something and you can really learn something new by reading his research papers. I completely agree with Grace. I think that as the paper stands, it was extremely informative to just read through it and see the choices they made. And I just like that it basically is a really good example of how to think about these complex problems and how to approach kind of each of the issues systematically. And one thing I didn't mention earlier on is just even the choice of substrate for me is, is kind of important in this case. They chose a symmetric alkene that prevented them from needing to compare weird, you know, different isomerized products that would, you know, cause problems in the analysis. And so just from the initial starting point of this reaction to optimizing the catalyst system, um, you know, it, it uses insights that have been built over more than 30 years of studying, you know, hydroamination reactions and build something new and something useful that will, you know, that provides a way to get primary amines into products that people are into starting materials that people don't typically think about using for this style of reaction. And so I think it's extremely complementary to a bunch of the work that is out there now. And so it will be you know, very useful for you know, developing new reactions going forward and potential use already. And that's our show. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Cyclo Edition. For more information on the papers discussed, we have included a selection of resources we used in our research at the end of the YouTube video. This was our take, a very interesting paper, and we would love to hear from you. Please comment below the YouTube video and reach out on social media. You can follow the Cyclo Edition on Twitter, where we will post updates about our next episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. 
We are releasing episodes throughout the summer and will announce the upcoming papers and episodes on social media. 